You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Bogus rumors and highly questionable claims of responsibility circulate online after the Las Vegas massacre. Google and Facebook come under pressure to moderate the content they carry. The UK prepares to pass tougher restrictions on viewing radical content. The Equifax breach gets two and a half million people bigger. And US Cyber Command is said to have disrupted North Korean intelligence networks. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, October 3rd, 2017. ISIS has claimed responsibility for the awful massacre in Las Vegas. Its Amok news service said that the apparent shooter, Stephen Paddock, who killed himself as police stormed his hotel room, converted to Islam some months ago. Amok calls Paddock by the honorific name Abu Abdul Bar al-Amriki, al-Amriki, that is, the American. Very few people believe any of this to be true. The FBI is particularly skeptical, saying they've discerned no connection between Paddock and any extremist group. It seems to most very unlikely that Paddock had converted to Islam and responded to calls to strike the unbelievers. Responsible or not, ISIS has incorporated the attack into their inspirational narrative. It's unusual but not completely unprecedented for the terrorist group to assert responsibility for crimes they had nothing to do with. Several observers attribute this departure, if such it is, to desperation, and as another sign that loss of territory and credible claims of ability to govern are driving ISIS into a global diaspora more dependent than ever on cyberspace for its continued existence. The claim is probably also connected to recent warnings ISIS has distributed via Telegram, advising Muslims to avoid public places in infidel lands, as the soldiers of the caliphate intend to turn those into battlefields. The attack has also inflamed criticism of both Google and Facebook for being conduits of bogus news and rumor-mongering. Among the messages carried were speculations that the shooter was a white supremacist, but these were so implausible that they had a very short lifespan. The gunman's motivation remains a mystery. The FBI and other law enforcement organizations are going through Paddock's digital exhaust to see what it might reveal, but so far nothing. Investigation is ongoing. Both Google and Facebook are clearly on their way to being considered news providers, not simply content-neutral platforms designed to exhibit whatever people happen to be saying online. Google's highlighting of search results from dubious sources prompts skepticism of Mountain View's algorithmic approach to news. 
Facebook, which has lately made much of its efforts to expunge bogus stories from its feeds, also fell flat in this instance. Observers think more human curation is the only realistic way forward for these platforms. Their methods currently are designed to highlight the most viewed and shared content, but this advertising-centric approach to sorting news clearly has its limitations. This morning, Facebook announced its intention of hiring 3,000 workers, human workers, it seems necessary to say, to monitor content. Facebook's acceptance of ads from Russian front organizations aimed at inflaming racial and class divisions in the U.S. also draws criticism. The company turned over to congressional investigators some 3,000 Russian-purchased ads bought and run during the last election cycle. Facebook has some new policies it hope will mollify congressional critics. It will now enable users to see all the ads placed by a given advertiser, not just those the social medium's rifle-shot targeting has selected for delivery to a user's specific demographic profile. Facebook will also require proof of identity from those who wish to buy ads bearing on U.S. political campaigns. The former measure seems unlikely to do advertising revenues much good. The latter will probably require a lot of labor from those 3,000 new employees to determine what counts as ad content bearing on an election. The general mood is that something must be done, but what exactly that might be is unclear. Those only loosely attached to the U.S. Constitution's First Amendment see the challenge as mostly one of policy and technology. Those with a more committed view of free speech as a right see deeper and less easily solved problems. For its part, the U.K. is using a heavy hand with extremist content. A new law is expected to expose repeat viewers of terrorist sites to up to 15 years in prison, a very harsh sentence by British standards. The proposed law is expected to pass, its proponents viewing it as a necessary component of an anti-radicalization strategy. Insider threats come in two basic categories. There's the malicious actor with access to your network, someone you've placed trust in who is up to no good. And there's the inadvertent threat actor, the employee who naively clicks on a malicious link in an email. Tony Goda is CEO at Thin Air, where they specialize in insider threat detection and investigation. What organizations need is visibility. So the problem is, is that the internal adversaries actually have more visibility and more context as to how what information is critical and how it's used normally than what the defensive people, you know, know about. Because if you think about it, organizations are organic; they grow over time. So that means if you deploy what's called a DLP system, which is a uh, technology that allows you to kind of, if you write rules in the right way, it'll stop people from doing terrible things with information. The problem is, is that you have to predict what terrible behavior looks like and you have to predict what normal looks like so if it doesn't fit any, either one of these rules then the dlp system doesn't detect it and allows the, the individual to walk out the front door with their critical assets we sort of have jokingly refer to it as the department of no and you know if you, <laughs> if you go to it with a question can i do this that they're you know there's there's a decent odds that they're going to say no but that leads to shadow it where the people who are in the organization who just are trying to get their work done um they're going to find a workaround how do you deal with that sort of thing I think visibility is critical for that, especially in that exact scenario. So that is literally, you know, 99.9% of all organizations that exist is that IT organizations have to decide ahead of time what is correct and what is not correct. And if it doesn't fit the model that IT has predicted, then it's default denied. 
And that, of course, causes people within the organization to figure out ways on how they can circumvent it so they can, again, get their work done because they're bonused on how productive they are, not on how secure they are, if you think about it. So the incentives are actually quite misaligned. And, and what are your thoughts in terms of proper ways or effective ways to incentivize those people who, who, for whom security might not be their top priority? I think, I think you have to take a page out of the physical world. So if you think about, you know, in a, when you walk into a bank, there are doors that exist, right? There are very thick steel doors and very thick bars that are on the windows. And these are what I like to call the protection technology. So these things stop you from doing things within the organization. The problem is, is that when those things fail, when someone drives a truck through the front door or the person that works in the bank decides to steal information from the bank, the only thing you have left are the observation technologies, the camera. So the camera itself doesn't replace the steel door, and the steel door doesn't replace the camera. They are complementary to each other. So again, this goes back to visibility. If you have visibility to when people touch things and what they do with those things, then you can decide what's important and what's not important after the fact. Or you can take steps to fortify your security posture because you know exactly where your risk is concentrated. So without visibility, again, all this other stuff is just not possible. I have a friend who likes to joke that you know, nothing is foolproof to a talented fool. Um, and, and I wonder about when you have clever humans who are figuring out these workarounds and, and IT might not know what it is to look for. They might not know what they don't know. That's right. If you think about every security breach that's ever existed, all of these companies have some security technology in place. So it's not that they don't have technology in place to help combat these issues. The problem is, is that the complexity in detecting human behavior when it's nefarious to the organization versus productive to the organization is actually an extremely difficult problem. So if you think about it, there's alerts that go off even in the, even in the targets of the world as those you know million or so credit card numbers were being exfiltrated. Of course, alerts were going off. The problem is the organization was inundated with alerts. So without having the proper visibility in place, it, it, it just, again, it just makes it extremely difficult for you to, for you to catch any of this stuff. That's Tony Goda from Thin Air. The Equifax breach appears to have affected millions more than initially believed. The company now estimates the number of affected individuals at 145.5 million, about 2.5 million more than it had previously estimated. Former CEO Richard Smith testified his regrets and apologies to Congress yesterday. He said, quote, To each and every person affected by this breach, I am deeply sorry that this occurred. Whether your personal identifying information was compromised or you've had to deal with the uncertainty of determining whether or not your personal data may have been compromised, I sincerely apologize. The company failed to prevent sensitive information from falling into the hands of wrongdoers. Quote. The SEC breach also got slightly worse, very slightly. The commission now says it's determined that two individuals had their personal data exposed. They're being provided with identity protection. The U.S. is said to have conducted a shot-across-the-bow DDoS attack against North Korea at the end of September. An administration source told the Washington Post that U.S. Cyber Command disrupted Pyongyang's principal intelligence service, the Reconnaissance General Bureau, with a distributed denial-of-service attack that ran from September 22nd until this past Saturday, September 30th. Perhaps coincidentally, but probably not, a Russian telco has since given the DPRK more bandwidth. TransTelecom has run a big pipe from Vladivostok.
Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's a senior law and policy analyst at the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Ben, welcome back. Interesting article came by via Engadget. Uh, this story broke that a U.S. judge has said that the victims of the Yahoo data breach have the right to sue. Uh, tell us what's going on here. So this is about the doctrine of standing. In order to make it into court to get to the merits of the case, a person has to suffer some sort of particularized injury, and that's the legal notion of standing. What Yahoo tried to argue is that the people whose data uh, was breached or were breached did not have standing because they couldn't allege with any sort of particularity that they themselves were injured. What this judge said, and what I think was a pretty persuasive argument, is that not only did they suffer present injury and in that uh, they had to purchase additional security measures to protect the integrity of their data, but they also will be suffering potential future injury due to the fact that they are going to have to uh, take additional measures beyond ones that they have already taken to make sure their data is not stolen again. This can include the cost of both financial resources and time resources, I mean a person's time, and those count as particularized injuries under our standing doctrine. The key here from a legal perspective is that the speculative injury is not very attenuated. Famously, there was a case, uh, Clapper v. Amnesty International, where uh, individuals who suspected that the government was surveilling them electronically tried to sue the government, and the Supreme Court said that they couldn't allege with any particularity that they themselves were getting injured, and even if they were, the injuries they alleged were not 100% likely to happen, but are not even 90% likely to happen. They were too attenuated. They, they would involve 
too many hypotheticals. Hmm. Here, the injuries aren't very attenuated. They're likely consequences of getting one's data breached. So I, I think this was a uh, very wise decision from the federal judge. And, you know, this got me thinking. Actually, we were talking about this over on the Grumpy Old Geeks podcast about how uh, there's a generally a, a settled amount uh, in, in terms of insurance uh, settlements and, and uh, various government agencies of what the value of a human life is. If a life is lost, there are some values that people have sort of settled on. I think right now it's around $9 million. And I wonder yeah. if we're heading towards a, a time where a, a breach of your personal information has a set value placed on it. Yeah, I mean, that's what's particularly interesting about this is now, because standing has been established, I think we'll be able to see what happens uh, when this case reaches the merits. And yeah, I, I've wondered about that as well. Can you put a definitive monetary value on the value of somebody's data? And it's not just tangible value in terms of the hardware or the software. It's also intangible value in terms of uh, what our devices and what d data reveals about our, our personal lives. So that those can be hard to quantify, but those are also particularized uh, injuries. So yeah, I'm very curious to see uh, how the court comes down on that issue. All right, we'll keep an eye on it. Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.